0: Is Israel today fulfilling Bible prophecy? In a word, yes. I should have to just say yes and sit down, because yes, it is. And we're going to be looking at that. Brother Stephen laid the the, the groundwork perfectly for what we're going to look at now. Because we know as Christadelphians, don't we, that the Bible calls Israel his, uh, God calls Israel his witnesses. In fact, he says to us through his word. Thus saith Yahweh, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, saith Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. So the very fact that Israel exists, the Jews are there, the most persecuted people down through time, is a witness to the God of the Bible. And not only that, we looked at this earlier, that God even tells us that Israel are his witnesses. He says, let all the nations be gathered together, let all of the peoples be assembled. And he, he challenges them. Who among them can declare this and show us Former things, let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, It is truth. Ye Israel are my witnesses, said Yahweh, and my servants whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. And the challenge, notice, is around Bible prophecy. We're at a Bible prophecy. Who can declare things? the former things before they've happened. Only God can do that. And that is what places our Bible, our scriptures, in a unique place amongst all the literature of the world. Because it isn't literature of the world, is it? This is God's holy word of truth that declares the former things. And Israel particularly has a key part in God's purpose, as we know, as Christadelphians. And so we we, we know that God's purpose is to establish a kingdom on the earth. And this kingdom, which Christadelphians look for, is very unlike a lot of the kingdoms that we hear about from mainstream Christianity. We're looking for a Jewish kingdom of Israel restored in the land of Israel. This is the clear hope and teaching of the gospel, to restore again the king to Israel. You know, it said that in Acts 1. Remember, Jesus is raised from the dead. He's with the disciples for 40 days. He gives them the most amazing Bible class. And at the end, that's the question they ask. They understood that it was God's purpose to restore the kingdom to Israel. That kingdom that had existed before in the Old Testament times under, under uh, David and Solomon that kingdom that was promised to be restored, the Lord Jesus Christ to sit on the throne of his father David, all of these things we know as Christadelphians to to be a beautiful gospel message. And so we look for the restitution, same word, of all things. Now, it's interesting um, that we... um, That we look for this, isn't it? Because we're very unique in that way, I would suggest. or It's quite a unique thing about Christadelphians. That and the fact that we don't accept the Trinitarian Jesus. This this makes us very unique, that we're looking for that literal kingdom with a literal people restored again in a literal territory, with a literal capital in Jerusalem, from which will go forth a literal law, the Torah, again to the nations. Now, we had a question submitted. Uh, if you've got your uh, sheets, it's actually, I think, somebody very carefully and, and very lovingly printed out some questions. We're going to try and, Brother Stephen dealt with a lot of them. I'm going to try and do what I can with a few of them. I know Brother John's going to do the same as well. And, and I know um, it was announced earlier, but we've got a, um, a follow-up meeting coming up as well. So as we go through these studies, I want to encourage anybody, particularly young people, if we're talking about stuff and you're like, what on earth was that all about? Please submit your questions because... You know That's why we're here. We're here to learn and study and to think. We may not have all the answers, but we might have some verses we can turn to to help you with, with understanding that. Now, one of the questions is question 10. It says, if Israel is so important in the purpose of God, why is it so little spoken about in the New Testament? Now, I, I, I want to challenge the supposition. Thank you, by the way, whoever submitted that. But there's some things in there I just want to challenge a little bit. Now, this is what Brother Thomas um, has to say about the idea of Israel and the land of Israel. Is the Holy Land to continue forever as it is this day? Remember, he was writing in 1848. The Ottomans were in control like Brother Stephen taught us earlier. Um, he couldn't foresee anything that we've seen. He says, is it gonna stay that way? He says, yes, verily, it is impossible that it can always be desolate and subject to the horns of the Gentiles, the powers of the Gentiles if it were, the kingdom of God should never be established, for the Holy Land is the territory of the kingdom. To all then who believe the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, that's the gospel message, of course, preached in Acts 8, verse 12, by the apostles, and forms two parts of our statement of faith. The first, I think it's 15 clauses uh, about Jesus, and 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 the final 18 about the kingdom. If We believe that, he says, how intensely interesting must the future destiny of this country be. And he says this, there are several strange fancies in the world concerning the restoration of the Jews. Some deny it in toto and yet impose upon themselves the imagination that they believe the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this is the foundations of our community. What Brother Thomas is doing here, and if you've ever read Elpis Israel, right, you'll see Elpis Israel means the hope. Of Israel, It's a, a statement, isn't it, taken from Acts 28, 28, where the Apostle Paul says, for the hope of Israel, I'm bound with this chain. And what our pioneer brothers uh, did when they studied the scriptures, they realized that the gospel of Christianity is centered in God's purpose with Israel. You can't detach the two things. You absolutely can't. The, the new covenant that we have access to, in the blood of christ is absolutely a jewish promise you read jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one, and then you read hebrews and you understand the connection between the fact that we gentiles have been grafted into their hope so god's purpose is still with israel as brother as brother stephen showed us earlier and our pioneer brothers laid this foundation and in fact it's embedded in our statement of faith the kingdom which Jesus will establish, will be the kingdom of Israel restored. A literal people, a literal capital, in a literal place. In the territory it formerly occupied, namely the land bequeathed from everlasting possession to Abraham and his seed, the Christ by covenant. And it goes on to say this, that this restoration of the kingdom again to Israel will involve the ingathering of God's chosen but scattered nations, the Jews their reinstatement in the land of their fathers, when it shall have been reclaimed from the desolation of many generations, the building again of Jerusalem to become the throne of the Lord and the metropolis of the whole earth. Of course, we're not quite there yet, but that's our faith. That's what we believe will ultimately uh, be, ultimately happen. And so as Christadelphians, you know, I, I do find that, that question strange. Why is it so little spoken about in the New Testament? Did you know my dear, my dear brothers and sisters and friends that Israel is mentioned actually 70 times in the New Testament that's not an insignificant amount the kingdom which is the kingdom of Israel restored is mentioned over 160 times it is not the case that Israel is some peripheral at the moment it is the case that Israel is the center of our hope that kingdom restored is the kingdom of Israel restored and we cannot And we dare not back away from that. The gospel has two halves. The things concerning the kingdom of God, which is everything to do with Israel, and the name of Jesus Christ, both together. And I wonder sometimes if we get that seesaw quite right. Christianity outside has thrown Israel in the bin, as Brother Stephen has shown with their replacement theology. But the kingdom is a key part of the hope that we have, the hope of Israel. Brother Thomas, again, He tells us about this restoration of the kingdom to Israel. By going through the prophecies, and we're going to look at a few of them in a minute, this is how he concludes things. He says, the truth is there are two stages to the restoration of the Jews. The first is before the Battle of Armageddon. It's the invasion of the armies of the nations against Israel. So there's a restoration before. And the second after it, both pre-millennial, he means both before the thousand year reign of Christ. Now, it's my task, my mission, if you like, to try and do the bit before Armageddon, get us up to Armageddon if I can. And then we're going to hand over to John to sort of take us through to that second and final um, restoration. But there might be a little bit of a merger between the two. I hope I don't tread on your toes too much, Brother John. I'll do my best not to. But, you know, these prophecies often intertwine. So there's this famous quote, I'm sure a lot of us have heard it, right, Brother Thomas, 1948, oh, sorry, 1848, let me get that right, 100 years earlier than I just said, 1848, he says this, there is then a partial and primary restoration of Jews before the manifestation, and the manifestation means before the visible appearing of Jesus. Which is to serve as the nucleus or basis of future operations in the restoration of the rest of the tribes, the rest, rest of Israel, after he has appeared in the kingdom. Now, you couldn't have a clearer statement of what the Bible says and what we as a community have always believed. And as Brother, brother Stephen has said, we have seen this as a community happen. So if you're ever, you know, if, you're, if your faith is ever feeling a little bit weak and you're feeling a little bit down or whatever, I always think, Israel are God's witnesses. Go and look at Israel. That'll encourage you. That'll build you up. The fact that they're there, the fact that we've actually seen some of this happen in our days, and they are there right now, is utterly remarkable. So what we want to do now is, that's a lovely preamble, Matt, lovely that you've given us a load of Christadelphian history. We're here to read about the Bible. Right, so let's get into the Bible. So what's going to happen? We're going to look at um, only three key prophecies. Um or three key sections of prophecy, but what we're going to find is that there's thing, there's something that I'm sort of terming the restoration pattern. Brother Thomas, I can't take credit for it, Brother Thomas has just explained it, right? Because what he says is, look, there's this primary partial restoration of the Jews back to their land. Um, they return in unbelief. And then there's this battle of Armageddon where the nations come and attack the restored Israel. And uh, there's the salvation of a remnant in that terrible time, the time of Jacob's trouble. And then finally, there's a secondary full restoration where they return in full belief of Christ as as the Messiah, as the king, and the kingdom reign begins. We're going to look at Ezekiel. We're going to look at Joel. We're going to look at Zechariah. In fact, we're going to start in Joel. So why don't we open our Bibles at Joel chapter 3, because I want to demonstrate that this is the case. And as we go through, brothers and sisters, young people, friends, what we'd love to do is try and pick out some of the details so that we can convince ourselves that, yes, not only in the macro sense Bible prophecy is being fulfilled by Israel, but also in some of the details, in the micro detail that we see uh, in the prophecies. So let's go to, um, to Joel chapter 3. Now, Joel is um, an interesting prophecy. Um, before we zoom in into chapter 3, you'll, you'll know that, um, you know, Joel came on the scene, bursts on the scene. He's warning the kingdom of Judah in the south of impending doom. You know the history, the northern tribes were taken um, by the Assyrians, the southern tribes, Ah, uh, tribes. The two in, in Israel, there were two left, um, and uh, and they were they they eventually fall as well, eventually to the Babylonians. And so, it's it's unclear precisely when Joel was written. I, I think the best bet is probably somewhere around the time of Hezekiah, for various reasons that we don't have time to go into. But for now, just have a look at this. So, chapter one is a prophecy about this devastating locust plague. The armies of this locust is coming. Chapter two is a massive call to repentance to blow the trumpet in zion and so joel the prophet is there and he's calling for the people to repent and then we get into chapter three which ultimately talks about what will happen eventually after unfortunately the nation falls by that invading force eventually what would happen to restore again the nation back again to their land so this is a restoration prophecy so let's have a quick look at this right we've got Verse 1, for behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. And so the prophecy is, is, that, yes, eventually you will fall for your disobedience, but I'm going to bring you back again. And notice the two groups there is going to bring back Judah and Jerusalem. Now Judah was is, is that sort of southern kingdom the area of Judea and Samaria the area around Jerusalem okay and Jerusalem obviously is specifically the city of Jerusalem so isn't it fascinating that when we uh, look up from our bibles and we look back at recent history you know we do have a, a sort of a, a process of time because in 1948 you could argue that that Judah the area around Jerusalem was restored again to Jewish Uh, power. And in 1967, as Brother Stevens mentioned, in the Six-Day War, against all the odds, the Jews gained control over Jerusalem. And we could make the case that the times of the Gentiles coming to a close, because of what Jesus tells us in Luke 21, that Jerusalem would be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. He said that 2,000 years ago, and it, only in recent times, 67, was that, um, was that kind of begun to come through fruition. So does anyone know what, what that place is? I don't know if you've seen that before. Well, I, I've never been there, I don't think. I've probably been past it. But that is apparently Birmingham Town Hall. It's quite a dramatic town hall. And why am I showing you a picture of Birmingham Town Hall? Well, because of this. Just listen to this sentiment from our community in 1967 the news from the Middle East stirred brothers, brethren and sisters everywhere. And with it came the urge to tell our hope to the world in the light of current events, because the Jews had once again got control of Jerusalem as we, were, as, we as a community had been help, hoping for. There's this, in many parts of the country, lectures were arranged on the relation of Israel and the Middle East to the prophetic hope of the gospel of salvation. You see, our brothers, Of all time, they connected what was happening in Israel to the very gospel message of salvation. Birmingham Central Ecclesia, with the active support and cooperation of 50 ecclesias in the surrounding area, arranged a lecture in Birmingham Town Hall on the Bible and the Middle East, God's purpose in the Holy Land. 2,000 people filled all available space in the town hall, and some 300 more listened in a relay in the basement. Early days of Zoom, right? It is believed that about 300 were visitors drawn by the publicity or brought as friends. Brethren and sisters came from many miles around to give support. Think of the energy and the excitement and the passion of our brothers and sisters of old. Let's rekindle that. Let's rekindle that spirit as we go through some of the detail of these prophecies. Because they saw this in 1967. Brother Thomas saw this in 1848. How much more have we seen? Even in the last year or so. And so we have that partial primary restoration described in verse one of Joel chapter three. But then you see in chapter two, it it, it doesn't sort of, it's not sort of all um, bunny rabbits and, and flowers when Israel's restored, because in verse two, it says, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, the word means God's judgment, and will plead with them there, judge them there for my people. And for my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. And so we have this this great battle described. It's the battle of Armageddon. It's the same battle that we read of in Revelation chapter 16 that tells us about this this word Armageddon, you know, a heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment. And in fact, we know that that phrase in Armageddon and and the meaning of it pops up here in Joel chapter 3. See verse Verse 12, it says, let the heathen be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, to the valley of God's judgment. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. And the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, or in my margin, the valley of threshing is what that word means. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of threshing. And so we understand, don't we, that the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 16, in the sixth vile period in our time after the Euphratian power of the Ottomans had dried up, is referencing back here to this prophecy. So we know that this is talking about God's judgment um, in the future that is going to take place. And notice in verse 17 this, it says, Well, in verse 16, it says, uh, that when that happens, that great those great armies of the nations come and are and, and brought, brought down. It says, Yahweh also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. So God's going to act. And it says, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but Yahweh will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So something happens to turn them to God. John's going to perhaps reference some of this. In verse 17, it says, so shall ye know that I am Yahweh your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no, no strangers pass through her anymore. And so we have Armageddon and the return of Christ. And to the end, that they will know God. That's the whole point. There's not going to be any obscurity at that time any confusion, they're going to know, the nations are going to know, Israel's going to know, that God is the God of Israel. And so the full restoration then can begin, verse 18 onwards, we read of that, how that Jerusalem is cleansed, and at the end of verse 21, Yahweh dwelleth in Zion. And so we see we've got the pattern, right? I, I think that's quite clear. Hopefully we've shown that very clearly. Primary restoration, they've got to be there for the nations to be able to attack them. That's Brother Thomas's point in El Israel. So they restored first in unbelief. The nations attack them. There's a, another a scattering of them, if you like. There's a remnant left, though, and then there's a full secondary restoration at the end of the prophecy. Let's have another one just to sort of go through a bit more detail. This is a, a classic one, Ezekiel 38. Now, I know somebody asked a question on Ezekiel 37. I'm going to Dodge that one and say maybe we'll 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 um, we'll look at that in discussion we've got in our discussion that's coming up in a few weeks' time, God willing. Um, But let's go in to Ezekiel chapter 38. Now, these prophecies in this section of Ezekiel they're all to do with the full restoration of Israel again. So what we find is that the prophets they're often prophesying at a time either in the exile or just before the exile. Uh, and disbandment of the kingdom of god in the past and before god does that or whilst god is doing that he gives the prophets also visions of their restoration again so they're not completely without hope the remnant of faithful ones would have clung on to every word and so it was for them to cling on to every word for their faith but then it's interesting because we get these beautiful details which only would become relevant and apparent, I suggest to you, to the generation living at the time when they start to come to pass. So some of these details in here, I believe, are for us, that enlightened generation, at the time when they begin to unfold. Now, Ezekiel was therefore written, just for, for clarity, around 600 BC. Around that time, around the, we know he was one of the uh, the Babylon. He was exiled into Babylon when. The King Nebuchadnezzar came down. And so he's given these chapters from chapter 33 onwards to 39. There's this theme that runs all the way through them. It's the same story, but it always ends in the same point. And the point is exactly the same point that we read of in Joel chapter 3. And that point is this that they will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. So if you look at chapter 38 of Ezekiel 38, look right at the end. And they shall know that I am Yahweh. It's the whole theme of Ezekiel. Now, we're going to dive into 38 now because I want to show you this restoration pattern. So Ezekiel 38 is about an invading force of armies from various nations listed in verses 1 through 7, headed up by this mysterious character called Gog in verse 2. Where's this army going? Well, look at verse 8. It says this, after many days, thou shalt be visited in the latter years, thou shalt come into the land. So this is where this army is coming. Notice the detail. Into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. So, so there's a, a gathering of the people back again to the mountains of Israel specifically. Those mountains have been waste, now they're they're not waste anymore. And they're dwelling confidently or safely on them. Look at verse eleven. Thou shalt say this is Gog and his armies I will go up to the land of unward villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. It's the same pattern of words, isn't it? And so this people of Israel, they're regathered. So we've got our primary partial restoration and they're there dwelling in that land on the mountains of Israel they're dwelling safely or prosperously the word safely in the Hebrew means securely or feeling secure and so it's at that time when these these armies come down now it's um it's interesting to note a couple of other things verse 21 it says at that time i will call for a sword against him against um this invader throughout all my mountains saith the lord yahweh every man's sword shall be against his brother and i will plead that's the same word judgment from joel chapter 3 against him with pestilence and with blood and i will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain And hailstones, fire, and brimstone, thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. So you see, this is God's purpose. There's going to be no doubt at the end of this that the divine hand has been played when Israel is attacked by Gog, and God acts to save his people Israel. Now we can we we often spend time in prophecy days identifying the the, the attacking forces, they're, they're there, as I've mentioned, in one, verses 1 through 7. Interestingly, I'm just going to pick out a couple of things. Verse 5, Persia is specifically mentioned. That is Iran, okay? The ancient name of Iran is Persia. It was only changed very, fairly recently to, to, to Iran. And so we have an enemy of Israel in Iran, says the prophecies. Who's this army headed up by? Well, Gog, as we know in verse 2 of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Chubal, as verse 2 should read. And we know that the word Rosh in the Septuagint, as it was translated, is the word Rus in Greek. The same word used today to describe the Russians. And so we believe and have always believed as a community that the leader of this invading force is none other than the Russians and Iran is with them. Now, one of the questions that um, we were asked to kind of cover off is um, verse 12, why do we stress the invasion by Russia upon Israel and not emphasize the Iranian backed Confederacy being formulated at the present time? Well, we emphasize that frankly, because that's what it says. It says that Russia is gonna be the driving force and that Iran in fact, will be part of the Russian force. And we can see that happening as well. Now, let's get back to this point. The Jews are going to be restored to their land. They have to be there to be attacked. That was Brother Thomas's logic. And, and they're gathered back and we've got those extra details. Now, are the Jews back? Yes, they are. The Israeli population is, huge, is, is growing uh, almost exponentially. This is the project, pro, projections there. I think there's, a, there's, there's over 9 million of them in the land at the moment. But notice the prophecy. It doesn't just say, will the Jews be back? It tells us specifically the area of contention where they go back to. The mountains, verse 8, of Israel. They are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle of goods in the midst of the land, it tells us in verse 12. So where are those mountains? Well, I don't know if you can easily see this, but if you take a, a map of Israel you'll be able to see, look at this one on the left, that the mountain range is in this area in the middle here. And uh, this is the best map I, sort of illustration I could get, where you can see the Dead Sea there is one of the lowest points on the earth, and there's, there's two ridges of mountains either side. The mountains of Israel, upon which Jerusalem sits, and um, you can see there, and Bethlehem and so on, is in this central piece here, and then it falls down to the Mediterranean Sea there. This area is the mountainous area of Israel, right in the midst, in the heart, in the navel of the land. These are the mountains. Now, in 1948, the United Nations divided up the land of Israel, didn't it? And you know what they said to the Jews? You can have the bit towards the coast, but you're not having the mountains. So there's a problem. And so I believe that you know in the conflicts that followed particularly in 1967 israel were always destined to take back the mountains and so they did in 67 against all the odds they took these mountains from the invading uh, arab forces and they they put themselves on them and the reason for that is you can see strategically it's not good to have all your people down here while people above are shooting rockets at you that's no fun so they wanted to occupy those mountains for sure. Not only that, strategically, they also believe it's the, the home of their ancient forefathers. And archaeology and history back that up. So they, still, they see this very much belonging to them. Of course, the Arab population, there's a whole narrative that goes along with this from the other side, which is that they were you know pushed out of their, their homes and so on. We don't get involved in the rights and wrongs of those things. But we as Bible students, we look at that and we think, this is interesting. Because what Israel did in 67 was they pushed those, those uh, um, enemies out and they established themselves in this area. And you can just about see the dotted line around, which previously was supposed to be for the Arabs. But they now, Israel now controls it. And to most of the international community, they do that in an illegal fashion. And so we have this conflict that I believe God almost foresaw. And, um, you know, back in the times of Ezekiel, that on the very mountains is the area of contention with all the nations as to who should own them. It's a massive problem. And so we have this, uh, this, this situation set up. And so here we have the United Nations. This is the territory, the West Bank, they call it. Um, Judea and Samaria is the biblical term. This area here where they, were, they, they say this, Israel shouldn't have this. And what are the Israelis doing cautiously, tentatively, and sometimes provocatively? They are building settlements in that area. So this is causing much international consternation. They, the international community, of course, hoped that there would be some sort of two-state solution. But that's really not happened. God said that that area was to be for the Jews in his prophecies, before Israel was even a thing. And so we've had this conflict since 1967 uh, around this territory. So I want to just draw quickly your attention to this little place here called Shiloh, right? famous for where the Ark was before um, uh, you know, the times of, of, of Samuel. Now, why am I drawing your attention there? Well, it was because a couple of years ago, t- 2019, I was blessed enough to be able to head out into the West Bank and get there. So I thought I'd share with you what's going on. In this area, so so here's the road up to Shiloh. It's um, it's quite pleasant. I don't know if you can see it. It's beautiful. We went in February. It's beautiful, just before COVID, actually. It was beautiful almond trees around, and you drive in. There's there's roads. There's you know signs. There's all this stuff you can see. There's populations here. This is the West Bank area. These people have lives there. They're they're eating. They're drinking. They're 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 marrying. They're giving in marriage, and their kids going to school. You know there's there's a whole populations of families there. This is, uh, this is them at the bus stop. There's parks with families going. Now these families, right, they're risking their lives. I think someone was stabbed there very recently. The Palestinians are not happy about these communities, but these people are not going anywhere. And We managed to give one of them a lift. This is uh, Ophek. He was going back to Jerusalem. We happened to be going that way. He was thumbing a lift and we thought, hey, it'd be interesting to chat to him. So we let him in our car. We took him back and he told us he was going to do some extra studies in Jerusalem. But his passion was to defend Israel. He wanted to join his brothers in the IDF and he believed that he was fulfilling Bible prophecy and defending the Jewish homeland. Now, Again, we didn't commit that was a good thing or a bad thing. You know, it's a very interesting thing to ponder how what our position is on those sorts of things. But these people are in the land and they are um, living in the mountains of Israel in contentious p- p- points of view. And so there we were. We drove back um, from Jerusalem, uh, from, from, uh, from, from Shiloh to Jerusalem. And we, we popped Ephek back in, in his school uh, in Jerusalem. Now, obviously, that's just a little glimmer. There's there's loads of these settlements coming up all over the place. In fact, according to uh, the West Bank Jewish Population Stats, which was only just recently published, there's half a million people in the West Bank. That is not a community you can just say, could you please just leave? That's a lot of people you've got to find new homes for if you tried that, feed, um, transport, and so on. It says that they reckon it's well it's growing in the last five years it has grown nearly over 15 percent in population this is a high growth population situation and so they're not going anywhere the bible is being vindicated prophecy is happening right now with people living on our planet with us we can go see them give them a lift if we want it's happening back in the mountains and of course under much international consternation. They're annexing the West Bank. That's the concern that, that, that instead of Israel being kicked out the West Bank, that, that the concern is, in fact, Israel's is going to say, all of you, uh, you know, Arab populations that are attacking us and against us, you get out of the West Bank. And so that's the concern. Um, and Netanyahu, the, the, the prime minister of Israel, has um, recently, um, you know, made some. Uh, very sort of um, big changes to the judiciary in Israel. So you might have heard about that on the news. Very A lot of people are concerned this is paving the way for the Jews to kick the Arabs out of the West Bank. If they did that, brothers and sisters, young people, that could be very serious in terms of the prophecies being fulfilled, of the international community getting involved. We don't know. We don't know. But listen to this. This was, Brother Stephen mentioned this earlier. I thought, oh, I hope he's not going to, He's not going to do what I'm going to do, so thankfully you didn't, because I'm going to, I am want to try and play you a clip, because this is Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. He is he's speaking to the United Nations. Now, he spoke there five years ago, and he was warning them about Iran. But since that time, the geopolitics in the region is changing. And one of the things that has happened is that Israel have had what's called the Abraham Accords, where they've started to make peace deals with other arab nations now as we go, as we listen to this and this idea of peace i want us to remember the fact that the, what does the prophecy tell us will happen with the jews that are back in the land although an area of 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 conflict ultimately at the time when the nations come down and attack what is that what are they doing well they are dwelling safely verse 8 verse uh verse 12 says that they are gathered and they've got prosperous, and they're dwelling there safely and confidently. So have a listen to this, and I'm, I'm hoping this will work. So bear with me. we tried try to get this to work. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Mr. President. Ladies and gentlemen,
2: now in countless meetings with world leaders, I made the case that Israel and the Arab states shared many common interests, and that I believe that these many common interests could facilitate a breakthrough for a broader peace in our region.
1: Thank you. Well, you applaud now,
2: but at the time, many dismissed my optimism as wishful thinking. Their pessimism was based on a quarter century of good intentions and failed peacemaking.
1: And why was this, why were these good
2: intentions, why did they always meet failure? because they were based on one false idea, that unless we first concluded a peace agreement with the Palestinians, no other Arab state would normalize its relations with Israel. Now for years, my approach to peace was rejected by the so-called experts. Well, they were wrong. Under their approach, we didn't forge a single peace treaty for a quarter century. Yet in in 2020, under the approach that I advocated, we tried something different. And in no time, we achieved an amazing breakthrough. We achieved four peace treaties, working with the United States. Israel forged four peace treaties in four months with four Arab countries. The United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. The Abraham Accords were a pivot of history. And today we all see the blessings of those accords. Trade and investment with our new peace partners are booming. Our nations cooperate in commerce, energy, water, agriculture, medicine, climate, and many, many other fields. Close to a million Israelis have visited the United Arab Emirates in the past three years. Every day, Israelis save time and money by doing something they couldn't do for 70 years. They fly over the Arabian Peninsula to destinations in the Gulf, India, the Far East,
1: Australia. There's no question. The Abraham Accords heralded the dawn of a new
2: age of peace. But I believe that we are at the cusp of an even more dramatic breakthrough, an historic peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Such a peace will go a long way to ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. It will encourage other Arab states to normalize their relations with Israel. It will enhance the prospects of peace with the Palestinians. It will encourage a broader reconciliation between Judaism and Islam between Jerusalem and Mecca, between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. All these,
1: all these are tremendous blessings.
0: I don't know about you, but that sends shivers down my spine. Like, how is the Prime Minister of Israel getting claps when he talks about peace at the United Nations? How has this happened? It's a sea change in the Middle East, like he said. And I don't know if you noticed, what he said was, for the last quarter of a century or so, they were trying to make peace with the Palestinians first, and then hope the rest of the Arab world would make peace. And then he's reversed it. Obviously, a lot of pride in what he's saying there. Obviously, it's under the hands of God, as Brother Stephen was saying. The time periods are uh, are set because God is uh, has a bigger purpose. But ultimately, change is happening. The peace is coming, and so we see a lot of things in our newspapers. Even just just go on today, and you'll see. You know, this is this is causing a lot of it. Interestingly, not a lot of Western media reported on what Netanyahu said. You know, absolutely amazing to me is that Russia is very upset with the US for helping broker some of these peace deals. Why? Because Russia is back in Iran and Iran is very anti-Saudi Arabia. I've got one more video in a second, but I wanted to just say that this, these peace deals, we could talk about prosperity, which we mentioned in the chapter. We could talk about the oil that Israel has found. We could talk about their advancements in tech. We could talk about their uh, their amazing agricultural in- innovation. The fact that they're the startup nation that investors are going there more than anywhere else to Haifa to Tel Aviv to invest in new technology we could look at all of that but there's also something else brewing in these peace deals that's happening and Netanyahu mentions it the and I'll play that in a second but their economy is growing even amongst the the difficulties that most western nations are having and they're the fourth best said the economist in 2022. So Is there a spoil for someone to come down and take? I think there is. Uh, There is definitely a spoil there. There's definitely a prosperity in Israel. This one smaller clip, because I want you to see the prosperity that the peace deals are bringing to Israel.
2: Two weeks ago, we saw another blessing already in sight. In the G20 conference, President Biden Prime Minister Modi and European and Arab leaders announced plans for a visionary corridor that will stretch across the Arabian Peninsula and Israel. It will connect India to Europe with maritime links, rail links, energy pipelines, fiber optic cables. This corridor will bypass maritime checkpoints or chokepoints rather, and dramatically lower the cost of goods, communication, and energy for over 2 billion people. What a historic change for my country. You see, the land of Israel is situated in the crossroads between Africa, Asia, and Europe. And for for centuries, my country was repeatedly invaded by empires passing through it in their campaigns of plunder and conquest elsewhere. But today, Today, as we tear down the walls of enmity, Israel can become a bridge of peace and prosperity between these continents. Peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia will truly create a new Middle East. To understand the magnitude of the transformation that we seek to advance, Let me show you a map of the Middle East in 1948, the year Israel was established. Here's Israel in 1948. It's a tiny country, isolated, surrounded by a hostile Arab world. In our first seven years, we made peace with Egypt and Jordan. And then in 2020, we made the Abraham Accords, peace with another four Arab states. Now look at what happens when we make peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel. The whole Middle East changes. We tear down the walls of enmity. We bring the possibility of prosperity and peace to this entire region, but we do something else. You know, uh, a few years ago, I stood here with a red marker to show the, the curse, a great curse the curse of a nuclear Iran. But today, today I bring this marker to show a great blessing, the blessing of a new Middle East between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and our other neighbors. We will not only bring down barriers between Israel and our neighbors, we'll build a new corridor of peace and prosperity that connects Asia through the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, to Europe. This is an extraordinary change, a monumental change,
1: another pivot of history. Now, as the circle of peace expands,
2: I believe that a real path towards a genuine peace with our Palestinian neighbors can finally be achieved.
0: Yeah, so I think that that's amazing. I mean, watch the whole speech when you get time, because it's it's mind blowing what he's talking about here. Um, the fact that those nations he's looking to make peace with, as as Brother Stephen mentioned, that's the look at verse thirteen of Ezekiel thirty eight, Sheba and Dedan. That's the area of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. They're the ones that challenged the Gogian invader that challenged the Russian-Iranian force that comes down, the merchants of Tarshish. Notice he mentioned maritime uh, links there. Absolutely amazing, that that sweep of united southern uh, territories there. And what's it all about? Well, if, if you don't know this, I'll just mention it real quick. The problem with these that these uh, southern Arab states have is Iran. There's a massive split in, in Islam between the Sunni Arabs who are b- uh, below, these these are the southern ones, and the Shia Arabs, which are in Iran. And they don't get on. There's a falling out about who basically the succession of Muhammad should have been. And there's wars been fought and people have died over it. And so as uh, Iran's getting more and more powerful, the Israelis are, are in the way. They hate Israel, number one. They, uh, they, they really hate Israel because that, that, that to them is, is awful. But then the second thing that they hate is the infidels that they consider in the South. And so Saudi Arabia is looking at that thinking, hmm, Israel, I'm going to back Israel, uh, first of all, because if, they, if we can prop them up, then uh, our, 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 our sort of Iran attacking us will be less, less of a thing. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's happening. It's a complete sea change in the Middle East. Prior to that, everyone was against Israel, as Netanyahu said. And I always love a good cartoon. So you know, here we get a good cartoon of of the uh, Saudis and uh, the Israelis, and then the Iranians on the right hand side. And so we have this shadow war taking place. Uh, the Persia of Ezekiel 38, the Iran there. Uh, propping that up. And I just think it's amazing when you think of the, the split in Islam, how many years ago that happened, you know, 900 AD, and how that set the scene now for geopolitics today. You can see the hand of the angels at work. So Ezekiel 38, primary restoration. We've looked at that. And um, what about the, the Armageddon? Well, of course, we've mentioned that verse 21 to the end about the uh, the, the attack of Gog coming from the north place, the, place, the uttermost places of the north, as it tells us there, um, and coming down uh, against the, the Jews and uh, God then acting at the Battle of Armageddon. And finally, we have uh, the full restoration mentioned. In fact, one question was asked, which was, was when Israel is dwelling safely, is, is that when Jesus returns? Well, if you flick over to chapter 39, remember same story, uh, different sort of same theme, different sort of aspect. One of the interesting things to note in chapter 39 about the, this time is look what it says um, in in verse 26 it says talking of the invader well look at verse th- 25 for connection therefore thus saith the lord yahweh now will i bring again the captivity of jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of israel and will be joyous for my holy name after This is after the battle of Armageddon, after that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. So when they're dwelling safely, Ezekiel 38 verse 8, it's the time when they're dwelling in a in a state of trespass against God. And on the whole, we know the nation doesn't accept Messiah, doesn't accept Christ as Messiah. And they do need to turn, and Brother John's going to talk to us about that. They are still in their trespasses. They haven't accepted the new covenant and forgiveness in Christ. That will happen, though. And it's at that point, you see, that they're attacked. And they then bear their shame in that invasion and the problems that take place in Armageddon. And it's only after then, when they've they've, uh, borne that shame, uh, when they were dwelling safely, that they are restored again. And so verse 29 says, neither will I hide my face anymore from them, for I've poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord Yahweh. So that's all, all happening. And um, and I hope you can see the connections then between the two. And Ezekiel 39 talks even more about what happens after Armageddon and how God uh, cleanses, uh, the, the land is cleansed and uh, the kingdom age begins. But we want to move swiftly on to one final section of scripture, Zechariah chapter 12 and 14. Now, Zechariah chapter 12, we read in our introduction. Um, and uh, and so hopefully some of it will still be in our minds. But there's some really interesting details. It's the same story, the same uh, idea of the restoration um, prophecies and the restoration pattern. But there's some extra detail, which I really wanted to bring out um, as we go through. So. Let's go over to Zechariah. Always struggle finding Zechariah. I don't know about you, but there we are. It's in there somewhere. Someone's taken
1: it out. Where's it gone? Right. So Zechariah chapter 12.
0: How does, the, how does the prophecy play out? Well, again, we have, look at verse five. Um, well, verse one and two, it talks about the burden on Israel. Interesting uh, point that we've looked at already, that when God announces himself in verse one, what's he announcing himself as? Yahweh, which stretched forth the heavens and layeth the foundations of the earth. I'm God who created you all, that you've all thrown in the bin with atheism and evolution. I am the God that created you and gave you the spirit uh, of life. End of verse one. Verse two, behold, says our creator God. I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and Jerusalem. So we've got the two territories. We've got Judah as a whole, that West Bank area, and Jerusalem specifically mentioned. And so the Jews have to be back there. Look at verse verse five. It says, And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the lord of hosts their god verse six in that day will i make the governors of judah like an hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire and a sheaf and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left and jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place even in jerusalem verse seven the lord yahweh shall save the tents of judah first Why? that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall Yahweh defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and he shall be, he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of Yahweh before them. And we could go on, but, but it's interesting, isn't it? That those people inhabitants of Jerusalem the governors of Judah they have to be in place for this prophecy to happen when the army comes down and attacks them the the, the big army when Jerusalem becomes a burdensome stone and then we get the full restoration mentioned look at verse 10 and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son." and shall be in bitterness for him, and so on. And so they look upon the one who bears God's name, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they pierced, and they mourn, they realize that they have made a mistake in all of their their Judaism. They'd lost sight of the true Messiah. Now, as I went through there, did you notice, I tried to emphasize it, so hopefully you did, but there are, in fact, in the detail of this prophecy, two key groups in Israel, at the time of the invasion of Gog. Did you notice that? So we have the governors of Judah mentioned in verses 5, 6, and 7, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem mentioned in 5, 7, and 10. These two areas, so you've got Judah, they seem to have some governors, and we have the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they seem to be distinctive. Now, they are distinctive because look at what it says in verse 7. We emphasize this, but let's just make sure we get this. Yahweh also shall save the dwelling places of Judah first. Those on the West Bank area. They're saved first. Why? That the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. Ever stop to think what that's saying to us? Well, I have a suggestion. But in the detail of this prophecy, what we have before us is these two groups that will come to the fore in the latter days when the Jews have been restored. There's going to be people amongst Judah and there's going to be inhabitants of Jerusalem. And there's a slight difference. They're all the Jews. They're all Israel. But notice that there's there's a chance that if God doesn't say, verse 7, the tents of Judah first, that the inhabitants of Jerusalem will, will, will be proud against them, will, have that, will, will feel that they have that glory. And so God chooses of the two groups to initially save the governors of Judah, rather than the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Is that, is that a fair exposition? I think I hope, I hope it is. It's in the detail. So what do we see when we look at the land today? We see the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they're there, right? Who lives in Jerusalem? Well, um, there's around just 600,000 Jews in Jerusalem at the moment. Um, since the 1950s, the Israeli government has resided in the uh, Knesset in Jerusalem. Since the 80s, it's been considered by most of the world as the capital of Israel. The, 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 City of Jerusalem is home to the Supreme Court, the Bank of Israel, the headquarters of the Israeli police. It's the center of the intellectuals. We have the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. We have many other educational institutions. It's also the center of all the religious groups. The Hasidic Jews, for example, have their great bells, great synagogue in Jerusalem. And four of the Sephardic synagogues of Judaism are located in Jerusalem. Many, many religious schools. So I, I I could go into this in depth, but I think as we step back, really, when we look at the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the Israeli population, this is where the intellectual elite are. This is the elitist groups of the nations. And we notice, we got a bit of a sense of the pride of that group, didn't we? When Netanyahu like, well, you know, I I suggested something and then it all happened. You know, this is this is the the spirit sometimes of some of these areas, in my opinion, when you go, when you go to Jerusalem. There's a completely different spirit if you head out to the West Bank areas and you go to where the governors of Judah live in the West Bank. The governors of Judah, the governors, it means um, the dukes, actually, that word's translated elsewhere, the leaders of Judea and Samaria, they're in the West Bank. There's 140 recognized Israeli settlements in the mountains of Israel. There's half a million Jews there, as I've mentioned before. Not including Jerusalem. Now, there's also a hundred settlements which are not sponsored by the Jewish state. So even the, the Jewish state considers them illegal. Now, I don't know for sure, but it's a suggestion, something to ponder, something to think about. That the detail of this, of this prophecy, is saying that we should expect a different type of ideology in the mountains of Israel, amongst the, the leaders of Judah before the battle of Armageddon. Now the settlers, if you go and speak to them or do any research, you'll find that they're a mixed bunch. Some of them are absolutely nuts, right? They really are. Some of them are less nuts, but all of them, all of them pretty much you'd have to be if you're going to put your family in harm's way, all of them believe absolutely in Bible prophecy. They really do. They haven't got Messiah. They have not got the truth. I 100% accept that. But they are religious, and they are religious enough that they would put their kids in harm's way in these territories, because they believe so fervently that, um, that that in Bible prophecy and that this is their land. They believe they're fulfilling that prophecy, and they are they are there now. I just want to show you the spirit of this of this type of governor of Judah, in um, in a group. This is the the, the 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 I think I pronounced it right. The Yesha. It means um, that this is an official group recognized by the Israeli government of 24 councils of Jewish settlements. Now, this is on their website. You can look this up. They say Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel and Leah, the founders of the Jewish nation. So they don't go back to 1948. They go back to the Bible for their basis of being. Dwelt in the mountains of Judea and Samaria in the mountains. That's where they are. What's this prophecy about? The mountains residing in Shechem and so on and so forth. The land named the promised land. When the Israelites came out of Egypt as a nation, they settled mainly in the hill country, in the portions and cities allotted to Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, Judah. There's Judah again, from every part of the land, and so on. So they believe they're in the place of this prophecy. What are they, what are they trying to do? It says, in the days of David and Solomon, the Israelite kingdom expanded rapidly. King David's first political capital was Hebron before ultimately moving the nation's capital to the eternal city of Jerusalem. After the destruction of the first temple and a brief period of exile, the Jewish people returned to their land, once again settling in Jerusalem and in the mountainous areas surrounding it, Ezra 2 verse 1. It's, of course, before the Romans, and then the Romans scattered them. In every century, Jews did come back in greater or lesser numbers to Jerusalem, Hebron, Gaza, and other locations such as Safed and Tiberias. Jews had never left uh, that place. After centuries of neglect, the area began to flourish once more upon the Zionist return to Israel and the waves of immigration, especially in the 19th century, when in 1860, Jerusalem's majority population was Jewish. Two more. What's the purpose of the council? The Yesha Council has been working for many years to promote the settlement movement, its development and establishment as an essential part of the state of Israel. Together with the heads of councils that make up the Yesha Council, we redefine the vision and strategy for the organization. We are in the midst of local, national, and international procedures that affect us, and in doing so, we set two important goals in mind. One, the first goal is the vision of one million. The mission is to populate the communities in Judea. That's the mountains. They want a million people. there. The second goal is the application of Israeli sovereignty in Judea, Samaria, and the Jordan Valley. They want to take that, that back. You no, know, there's no mention in the Bible of a two-state solution. Isn't that interesting that that's what they, they see, the Jews having that? As these two goals are engraved in, on our hearts, we look forward fearlessly. Despite difficult challenges and struggles, we are confident in the justice of our path and know that together we can overcome any ob- obstacle. We wish all our friends and supporters in this country and in the world May we continue to love the country and its community out of the love of the people and the homeland. Best regards, uh, David Eliyani. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. I'm not taking sides in, in this politically, but I'm just saying, isn't it fascinating that we have a community on the mountains of Israel in the West Bank settlements, which everyone, including some of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, feel are a bit annoying because they keep doing things like setting up new settlements, which is very inconvenient when you're trying to talk to the international community. And we have the international community looking at it saying, this is terrible. God has provided and set the scene, I would suggest, to you for, for these prophecies to fall exactly as the prophets have predicted through God's Holy Spirit power, that yes, Israel has returned. Yes, they're there in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And yes, we can see there are governors of Judah and there are inhabitants of Jerusalem. Let's continue to watch and see how everything plays out, brothers and sisters. The final chapter is in chapter 14. So just flick on to chapter 14. Same story of Zechariah. It says in, um, in verse one, Behold, the day of Yahweh cometh, and thy spoil, same word. is Ezekiel 38 shall be divided in the midst of thee for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished and half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city so this attack is happening the nations are coming Armageddon God acts, verse three, then shall Yahweh, the Lord, go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Interesting detail, wasn't it, in chapter 12 when when he says that it seems that the governors of Judah are given some powers to help defend uh, their, 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 their territory there. But the point is that we have the battle of Armageddon. Then look at what happens, verse four, and his, this is Yahweh, this is the one who bears God's name. I believe it's the Lord Jesus Christ primarily, the Yahweh embodied in him. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half toward the south. And he shall flee and goes on and on about what happens in those days. They shall flee to the mountains verse 6 and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark verse 7 and it but it shall be one day which shall be known to Yahweh not day nor night but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light so we have these prophecies of Armageddon the battle the obscuringness of the of the light in that day and then we get the second full restoration look at verse 8 and it shall be in that day that living waters shall, be, sh- shall go out from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the Hinder sea in summer and in winter shall it be. Verse 9. And Yahweh shall be king over all the earth in that day. There shall be one Yahweh and his name one. They will know him in that day, brothers and sisters. The nations will know. Israel will know that Yahweh is the king verse 11 says men shall dwell in it Jerusalem and there shall be no more utter destruction but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited so that's the battle of Armageddon that's what ultimately happens and then we get the final visions as we go forward there's a vision of of the people the nations going up to Jerusalem to keep the feast of tabernacles We get this beautiful picture in verse 20, that in that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto Yahweh, and the pots in Yahweh's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Jerusalem shall be holiness unto Yahweh of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seed therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanites in the house of Yahweh of hosts. The kingdom era will have begun. And the important thing here, brothers and sisters, as we've just seen that pattern unfold from this chapter, is who is with Christ when he comes to defend Jerusalem against the invasion. Look at verse 5. At the end it says, And Yahweh my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And so we believe, don't we, brothers and sisters, that the resurrection and the judgment of us and our faithful brothers and sisters of old will have taken place. Now, we're saddened to hear just this week that our dear brother Paul Billington has fallen asleep. Who started all of these prophecy days. He did an immense work with the Bible magazine. And he's looking forward to that day when the resurrection will take place. We all have to stand before the judgment seat, don't we? But in God's love and God's mercy, we look forward to that time when Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, there shall be one Yahweh and his name one. And so is Israel today fulfilling Bible prophecy?
1: Yes.